Welcome to Everyday Martial Artist, a weekly podcast where you'll join me, Brian Doucet, as I interview a different martial artist each episode and hear their story. Some guests you may have heard of, and some you probably haven't. Be sure to subscribe where all your favorite podcasts are available. Also, visit our website at everydaymartialartist.com. If you're listening for a specific interview, I sure hope you'll stay and check out the other episodes. A very special thank you to Topher Williams for our custom theme music. And now, the newest episode of Everyday Martial Artist. Everyday Martial Artist is brought to you by KOonline.com for all your martial arts needs. Sparring and safety gear, rank belts, uniforms, weapons, patches, and more. Wholesale supplies made by martial artists for martial artists. Visit us today at KO-Online.com. Hello and welcome to Everyday Martial Artist. I'm your host, Brian Doucette. And as we do every week, we're joined by a brand new guest talking about their life and their journey throughout the martial arts and everything else they're involved in. My guest today spent three years in a covert position with the CIA's Directorate of Covert Operation, then worked as a technology lawyer and startup executive in Silicon Valley in Japan, earning his black belt at the Kodokan and Judo along the way. He is a New York Times bestselling author who's written over 25 books, including the series that introduced me to his writing, the John Rain series. He lives in the San Francisco Bay Area, and when he's not writing novels, he blogs about national security in the media. Please welcome my guest today, Mr. Barry Eisler. How are you doing today, sir? I'm good, Brian. It's good to be on the show. I appreciate it. Seriously, and I know how busy you are, and I appreciate you taking the time to do this. My pleasure. Thanks for the invitation. Kind of how we kick it off with all my guests, I just want to go back to the very beginning. I want to know where that first spark from, that first, what led to that first interest in martial arts for you? I got bullied a lot when I was small. I was uncoordinated kid, not a good athlete, and I grew, I'm 59 now, so it was really a different, I think it was a different kind of approach to school and gym class, that kind of thing. So now everybody gets trigger warnings and that sort mm -hmm. of thing. But back then in, in gym class, the teacher would pick the two best athletes in the class and then they would choose their teams, one alternating. So they would choose the next best athlete and then the other guy would choose the one after that. Mm -hmm. And I was always the second to the last guy to get picked, as I said, just because I was naturally uncoordinated. So athletic prowess at that age is um is a kind of currency and i didn't have it and for whatever reason i went to a school that was somewhat ethnically mixed and i got i just got picked on a lot and i i hated it it was almost like i wasn't afraid to fight i just didn't really know how and at some point when i was in junior high school i remember looking at wrestlers and thinking i wouldn't want to fight one of those guys and this was what year are we talking about? I graduated from high school in 1982. So this would have been around 1979 or so. Okay. I can't believe it was that long ago. But anyway, <laughs> so I got into high school wrestling and I'm actually proud of uh, the insight I had as a 15 year old. This is obviously way before the UFC, that sort of thing. But I recognize that Western style wrestling was, in addition to being a great sport, also a, a really good martial art for a lot of reasons. And uh, so that wrestling became, I became obsessed with wrestling, wrestled for three seasons, did pretty well in growing up in New Jersey. New Jersey is a pretty strong wrestling state for people who don't know. I mean, mm -hmm. Oklahoma's got a deserved reputation for it and Iowa, but New Jersey is a top wrestling state. So, um, so to place in state competition in New Jersey is, it's pretty decent, especially for someone who um, started relatively late. So I'm proud of that too. But so wrestling became the basis for my, my journey in martial arts, such as it's been. Wow. Okay. And so you said you did it through high school, had success with it. Now, any thought at all of trying to do it in college or little, little beyond your grasp? Of yeah, that a little, a little bit because I really, I really loved wrestling. I miss it. It's still, of all the martial arts 
I've played around with. Wrestling's my first love and my best love. Not for, I'm not, and I'm not trying to persuade anyone. This isn't, the point isn't, and I don't think there can be a point that, oh, this martial art is the best martial art or that one is or anything right. like that. At some point, there's a question of preference, but having played around a decent amount with some other grappling arts, chiefly judo and Brazilian jiu-jitsu, which I also love, the thing I love about wrestling, well, now we would know it as, you know, no-gi jiu-jitsu or something like that, but there's no gi, there's no grabbing onto a uniform. So you just get more movement, more fluidity, and that appeals to me. I really like that aspect. Anyway, yeah, that's how I started. And what I would say is the other thing that always appealed to me about wrestling as a martial art, and specifically not as a martial art to try to get in good shape or to learn discipline or anything like that, because there are a lot of reasons to study martial arts. And I wouldn't advise anyone that, oh, this is a better reason than, than that other reason. I would say, here are the following things you might get out of involvement in martial arts. And you have to decide what's your goal, what are your goals, your primary goal, whatever. And then try to choose an art that's practiced in a certain way, trained a certain way, that has the best chance of helping you achieve that goal. For me, as I mentioned, as a kid who got bullied, I wanted to learn how to fight, how to defend myself. And the thing that's so great about wrestling, but not just wrestling, uh, that I've learned in retrospect about wrestling as specifically a self-defense system or a fighting system or whatever is it's force on force. And in my experience, there's just no better way to to train in a martial art then as close as you can get to force on force. It's why boxing is a great martial art to me. Again, if self-defense is your goal, I boxing, jujitsu, judo, I'm not putting down any other system. And I played with quite a few, but I think it's inherently harder to get to a point where you'll be effective in the main event under adrenal stress with ambiguity and all that kind of stuff. If you haven't had someone really trying to punch you in the face or really trying to strangle you or whatever, uh, and trying to stop you as hard as he can from from your doing those things to him. It's just a different kind of experience. In my experience, not everybody might agree, and that's okay. I know people people have strong opinions about martial arts. So, did you ever have to use it then to defend yourself while you were in high school? Yes, I had a, a few scrapes along the way. Not so much in high school. Once in college that I remember. Okay. And um, and once later in life when I really shouldn't have been doing stuff like that. It was just a stupid incident. But what interested me is at the time when these things happened, I had... I'd actually had a fair amount of other kinds of training. So Ooh, okay. I boxed, by the way, I was, I was a bad boxer, I should specify, <laughs> but I was doing, in college, I got interested in karate because I was like, all right, well, I'm decent at wrestling. I'm comfortable grappling, but I'm not comfortable with somebody trying to punch me in the face. I don't know how to block or parry or what, bob and weave. And I, I mean, I sort of knew how to throw a punch, but not really, not the way a boxer can. And I didn't know how to kick or anything. So I started, took a martial art, I forget what it was called. It was a karate class, but was it, uh, it was one of the ryus and I can't remember which one. Okay. Not Shotokan. I can't remember. It's just Sh- so long room, maybe? It was a big gym class in the episode. Yes, I think so. Okay. Shorin, that, Shorin, that, Shorin, a lot of people in that time frame right. seem to have done show in your own college. So that would make sense. Okay. Well, I liked it. But the emphasis was a lot on kata, which mm. I found interesting. But I just had a sense that if I were really pushed, if I were really in a fight, I just didn't feel like this kind of stuff was going to come to the surface just because of the way I was training it. Okay. And again, I'm, I'm not taking some sort of global position on this. People learn in different ways. Their bodies react in diff- different ways. But the emphasis on kata it wasn't doing what I wanted. And I read, I must have heard about actually, because this was in the 80s, there's no internet, but I heard about a place called the Greater Ithaca Activities Center in downtown Ithaca, which was a boxing gym. And so I rode my bike down there and I started boxing. 
And just like wrestling, I was like, okay, this this is what I'm looking for. Because you learn some fairly simple moves. I mean, boxing doesn't have all that much offensively. A jab, straight right, a hook, maybe a shovel punch, uppercut. It's just, there just aren't that many, uh, at least offensive boxing moves. And the kind of training where you got to spar and you can get pretty intense just really appealed to me. One thing that's great about boxing, and for anyone who's interested in martial arts is self-defense, I would really recommend boxing for this or Thai boxing or any kind of uh, martial art where somebody, sure, you're wearing pads, but somebody's really trying to punch you in the face and everywhere else, or mostly yes. everywhere else. You get used to being punched in the face. And it's funny how shocking it can be to get hit in the face if it's never happened before. It just sort of violate your whole sense of space and that sort of thing. But, you know, after you've been sparring for a while, it's just what happens for two hours every night you go train in the gym, you just get punched in the head. That's not that big a deal. And that's part of what makes boxers, in my opinion, dangerous. Because you punch that guy in the head and that's just a night at the office for him. It's, yep. just, it's not going to rattle him all that much, not necessarily. So anyway, so that was boxing. And in those, those uh, few incidents I, I uh, found myself in along my life, I was interested that of all the martial arts I played around with, and we're talking about karate and Aikido, Taekwondo a little bit, uh, Shorin Ryu, Ryu Karate, the ones that came to the surface under adrenal stress were absolutely boxing and wrestling. Nice. Not even judo, and I trained hardcore at the Kodokan in Tokyo for a year and, and earned my first degree black belt mm-hmm. at the Kodokan. And I loved judo, but again, under adrenal stress, what came to the surface is, I don't know why, the first stuff I learned and definitely the stuff that was that I did the most competition in. Okay. I was I just going to ask that. Did you ever compete then in boxing? <laughs> no, all no? I did in boxing was okay. spar. Okay. <laughs> uh, I did compete in high school, again, all the way into state competition, yeah. uh, competed in wrestling. And in judo, would I say I competed only in the sense that at the Kodokan, I don't remember the exact system and I don't know if it's still current because this was 1993, 94, but to get your first degree black belt and probably second degree, third degree and on, you had to amass points in competition. And I don't, it's like you get one point if you win in, I think it was monthly competition. So you should compete against everyone else who's there, people of your rank. And if you win, you get a point. If you lose, you don't get any points. And if you win, you can you, you can fight again that night to someone else who won. So the competitions get tougher as it goes along. Tie, you get a half point. You don't fight anymore. Anyway, so the idea is that it's going to take you a while to accumulate the required, I think it was 10 points. And then there's some other tests and blah, blah, blah. So in that sense, uh, I was definitely competing. Okay. But it wasn't quite the same as... This is another thing, in my opinion, about martial arts. Adrenal stress... It's a game changer. If you've never trained under adrenal stress, I think your chances of rising to the occasion in a real event are vastly diminished. It's really important to train under adrenal stress. And one way to produce that stress is competition with people watching. You know, if you're talking about high school wrestling, then it's your friends, your family, your parents, a lot of social pressure. Everybody's watching. You're scared you're going to get humiliated. You feel that pressure and you got to deal with that. Is that the same thing as a street fight? No, nothing's the same thing as a street fight except the street fight. Just like there's nothing is the same thing as combat except combat, but that doesn't that doesn't stop the military from putting people through basic training. Right. The adrenal training really helps, in my experience, really helps with the main event. So for that, uh, wrestling competition in high school was helpful. Judo competition was somewhat helpful, and I didn't. I never competed in front of a crowd in boxing. Okay. Uh, just just sparring. So then after boxing, after college, after boxing, what was what was your next step in your martial arts journey? Uh, I did. I trained for about two months under, you got me a second to remember his name because this is so long ago. 
Uh, so you, you mentioned I spent three years in a covert position at the CIA after mm-hmm. I graduated from law school. So this was 89-92. And I was living in Northern Virginia. And there were a lot of dojos, as you can imagine. But I was curious yes. about Aikido. You know, probably I had seen Steven Seagal's movie, Above <laughs> the Law. I seem to remember having seen that movie in law school. I could be misremembering, but I think so. And that was about as much as I knew about Aikido, but I was like, that looks pretty cool. Uh, it's not grappling, but it's it's grips and, and throws. So I was curious. And as it happened, there was a guy, and he might still be there because he was famous. He, he trained under Morihai Washiba. Wow. Ah, Satome Sensei. Anyway, Satome Sensei, so this is 30 plus years ago. He would have been a relatively young dude at the time. Uh, one of Morihai Washiba's students, uh, Satome Sensei, had his own Aikido dojo in Northern Maryland. So for two months, I went up there and I was training almost, I don't know, five days a week or something. Very serious, traditional Aikido dojo. I really liked it. What I would say I didn't like was, for me, personally, again, you didn't have that kind of adrenal stress, force on force kind of training that maximally appeals to me. But I was still really interested in the art and trying to integrate it with what I already know. And I did a bunch of not hardcore judo like I ultimately came to do when I was living in Tokyo. But I I met a couple of Japanese business school students at Cornell when I was an undergrad there. Those guys were interested in Western wrestling and I was interested in judo. And so I used to play around with them and that was really fun. So I had a little bit of mat experience in judo when I was living in Northern Virginia and I so I thought, okay, maybe I can integrate some of this in what I picked up with boxing and wrestling and a little bit of judo. And maybe I could have, but the thing was um, in rush hour traffic to get from Northern Virginia to Satome Sensei's dojo, which was Tacoma Park or someplace in suburban Maryland. It was, I mean, it was like an hour and a half round trip and that tooth to tail ratio, that footprint for like an hour workout to have to take two and a half hours out of your night. I can't do it. (laughs) It was just as much as I loved the dojo and I was into the art, it was too much of a commitment for an hour of training and I was pretty busy with work. So, so I stopped doing that and I wound up doing Taekwondo at a place that was a lot closer and that was fun. But again, my natural uh, lack of coordination came to the fore and kicks for me is just not, it's an interesting challenge, but, you know, I might as well learn to play piano with my feet as to kick someone. Like, it's just, it's not going to happen in the world. Or or it could, but the amount of training it would take me to get. And so, Brian, I know I'm talking about, but I'm going to, I'll mention yep. one other thing. Like, to me, this is a principle of, of martial arts training and all kinds of training. And not everybody may agree, but just consider what I'm saying, because I think there might be something to it. The practice of implanting something deeply in your muscle memory so that it comes to the fore at critical moments, like it bypasses your brain, adrenal stress, whatever, that level of muscle memory, that takes thousands of repetitions under all conditions, different times of day, different states of mind, adrenal stress, all that kind of stuff. That's been my experience. And I'm pretty sure this is if not universally true, it's really common. Mm-hmm. It just takes a while for your body to be able to reproduce something automatically. And it's hard enough to do if we're talking about ballet. But to do it when someone else is trying to interfere with your ability to do it is at least arguably another level. So the moves, the, the tactics, the techniques that have always interested me the most from a martial arts perspective are the ones that you could practice repetitions of relatively quickly. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't mean that those other moves don't have value, but it does mean that those moves will take longer 
to practice and therefore each individual repetition will take longer to practice to reset to do it again and therefore it's going to take you longer to become fighting efficient like combat efficient or even sports combat efficient with that particular technique so i've been off the judo mat for so long that i've forgotten a lot of the names but like tomonage the it's a very cool move where you like you you, you take your opponent's lapels and kind of you roll you you drop to your back and get your body under his while you plant a foot in his abdomen or if it's the street maybe his groin whatever and you you roll on your back like a wheel uh and throw him over you mm-hmm. it's great technique yeah i got nothing against it um i wasn't very good personally but that's not the point but the point is to practice that technique again and again and get good at it and there are guys who are fantastic at it but it takes longer for each repetition of that technique because you got to throw your opponent then he's got to get reset you know blah 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 then something like deashi but i a foot sweep you can hit that foot sweep boom so you can get better faster at the foot sweep it doesn't mean that one is better than the other it's just something to keep in mind if you are thinking i want to get good fast at a certain technique mm-hmm. anyway just something to consider no that's a great way to look at it and that's one thing like you know i've interviewed people who trained with bruce lee and and i've talked about this a few times on the show bruce lee had told people to develop what he called their martial arts toolbox you need to have four or five techniques that you are just perfect at. That you can learn a thousand techniques, but there should be yeah. four or five that are your toolbox. So they will come to the top, that they will become instinct, muscle memory. When you need them, they were there and they can get you out of any situation. And it's kind of the same type of thing. It's, it's just, it needs to be second nature. Yeah. And Bruce Lee had multiple, I think, profound insights. That's one of them. And for what truly little it's worth, that has been, my experience is tracked with that. You'll have a couple of things that you're best at. I'm not good at anything as Bruce as Bruce Lee was good at Jeet yeah. Kune Do. Yeah. But uh, but the things, but but there are a few things, even on the wrestling mat, for example. And I would add one little refinement that if in your toolbox, among your favorite, your go-to techniques, if you have two that or more that complement each other, that can be particularly effective. Yes. Because my go-to move when, when I was wrestling in high school was a far side cradle, a, a cross face cradle. It'd be hard, a little hard to describe just mm-hmm. verbally, but if anyone's listening, that is great. You know what that is. And I could run that cradle. I would try to lock you up. If I, if I have my left hand, if I'm trying to put the cradle in my left hand is given is across your face and my fingers are hooking your right bicep. I'll try to run that cradle clockwise to drive your upper body into your bracing leg. And then I can slide my right arm under and lock up the cradle. But for you to resist my ability, my attempt to do that, you got to brace and I can swing the other way, pop you in the hips and break your base down that way. And this is a matter of physics. You can defend against one, but it makes you vulnerable to the other. And similarly, like if, if I stand up and you're behind me and I'm trying to, now I'm trying to get loose for an escape, just high school wrestling. Mm-hmm. I can look for, oh man, I, for what's it called? I've forgotten what it's called. Um, like I can cut to the right and try to put my right arm over your right arm and uh, get my hand under your thigh. Uh, I don't remember what it's called, but it just creates leverage. Mm-hmm. And I will pop if I'm successful at this. Now the counter to my ability to do this for you is to run away clockwise and I have to chase you clockwise. But as you're running clockwise to get to stay clear of my arm, you're setting yourself up in the other direction for a standing roll. That just, I was good at that technique. I just had a feel for it. I loved rolls, still love them. Incorporated them into things where even you don't see so many rolls like judo. I just, just had a knack for that move. And the beauty of those two moves in my toolbox, again, I'm not saying I was great at those things, but they, for me, they were, those were some of my go-to moves and I, right. was, I was pretty good at them. The one 
you could defend against it, but in defending against it, as a matter of physics, you were setting yourself up for the other one. And so there's a, a dance. Anyway, that's, that would be what I would add to the idea that you should have a toolbox. It shouldn't be just random things. Ideally, those tools will complement each other. I like that. Now, you'd mentioned Taekwondo. Do you remember which uh, Taekwondo? Because I've actually interviewed a few Taekwondo instructors from Virginia. So I'm just curious if you remember which one. I can tell you this. I'm embarrassed to say that I can't remember the name of the Korean guy who ran the dojo. And he had other... Uh, other dojos or other academies too. And I can't remember his name, but at the time, his top student was a guy named John Bassard, and Bussard, I think. I don't know if John ever became a big deal. His Taekwondo was beautiful. He was probably at the time in his 20s. And the master was a much older dude. What looked old to me then doesn't look nearly as old now. Probably the guy was in his 60s. And John was probably in his 20s. And uh, I would have been, I don't know, Jun Ri, he was the big famous one out there. No, 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 it wasn't, it wasn't Jun Ri. Okay. It wasn't Jun Ri. I think it was in Maryland, not okay. Northern Virginia. Hmm. But I trained there for not a super long time, but it might have been as long as a year. Okay. And they sparred, but it wasn't, again, not putting down anybody's art, uh, just talking about what appeals to me. They didn't spar like boxing sparring. Mm-hmm. Like it was more contact sparring. And when I spar, I like somebody to really be trying to punch me in the face and knock me out. You know, they're wearing gloves and I'm wearing headgear and uh, mouth guard and everything. But that for me is the, the most appealing thing. One other thing I would say that is a principle I've discovered for what it's worth mm-hmm. in terms of, oh, I want to learn a martial. I want to learn a martial art for defensive, for, to get self-defense, learn how to fight, defend myself, whatever. In many ways, I would say the way that art is trained is at least as important as the art itself. It's not that the art itself isn't important, but the way it's trained is important. And again, in my experience, any kind of force-on-force training is really what you want. Yeah, if it's just point sparring and no more than that, it's going to take a long time to develop street effectiveness. Not impossible. And I would be worried that I wasn't like it was. That's a very big leap to go from point sparring to somebody who's really trying to knock your head off or take you down, you know, hard, throw you onto the ground hard, all that kind of stuff. So now I'm curious now, when you were with the CIA, was there any kind of interesting hand to hand combat training you got to go through that kind of developed as part of your martial arts technique? Oh, yeah. A little bit, and I, but most of these stories are either going to explode myths, and I think they might be humorous. Uh, look, the CIA is a big place, and my experience there is 30 years in the rear view, so, so it's, you know, I, I can't speak for everything that's ever happened to the CIA, but I can say this. I went through the SATI Special Operations Training Course. That was, I think, seven weeks of paramilitary training, and then the 20-week field tradecraft course, which is everything you need to know to develop and maintain a clandestine relationship. Hand-to-hand stuff was not, if I'm remembering correctly, part of the field, the FTC, the field tradecraft course, but it was part of SOTSI. And SOTSI was taught by some seriously, legitimately badass guys. These are guys with many of them with extensive combat experience and veterans of various special uh, operations branches of the U.S. military. So there was a guy who was a former major in special forces who came up through the ranks before retiring at major and, and becoming part of CIA's, what they change the name all the time, special activities division, special operations group, who knows what they're calling themselves mm-hmm. these days. But uh, his name was Jack. And there was a guy named Carl who I became quite friendly with. Carl was former Marine Force Recon. I remember asking him what was the difference between Force Recon and Recon Battalion. And his answer was, 
their pussies were not. That was Carl's answer. I don't really know. Carl was a character. So really, really tough, experienced guys who, not surprisingly now based on my experience, because you might think that these guys were like strutting around and they were super badass. Not true. Nice guys, in my experience. Great teachers. Um, I had huge respect for them. And so maybe they responded to me based on that respect. But I did also like to tweak them because that's in me. Um, <laughs> they seem to get a kick out of that. Nice. As long as the tweaking is built on an obvious foundation of respect. Right. It goes, in, in my experience, it goes over well. So I trained with all these guys and they were great teachers and there was a hand-to-hand -hand component. But I think it's in us humans and particularly among us people who've trained in martial arts to have some sense or maybe longing that whatever training I've had, whatever experience, there's something out there that's more special, like some secret Shaolin technique that maybe if I climb that mountain, I can learn the secret techniques of whatever I don't think that stuff really exists. I just think there are good teachers and good training and sound principles. And, you know, every time you see a movie, like a Liam Neeson movie, mm -hmm. like Taken, for example, like yeah. somebody attacks his, I think he's bodyguarding and tries to attack her with a knife. And Liam Neeson just with perfect choreography defends the girl and himself against this uh, assassin or would-be assassin with a blade. I'm like, in the real world, every study I'm familiar with, every reality-based study that I'm familiar with is like, look, what do the corpses always have? Defensive wounds. <laughs> yep. um, defending unarmed against a blade, especially against a blitzkrieg attack, it's not impossible. I'm not saying it's never been done, but seriously, good luck. I don't even bother with that kind of training because I'm not in a high-risk environment. I think the chances of it helping me as opposed to say the Nike defense, which is just to run away. Like, like, yep. sorry, I'm, I'm rambling a little bit, but you know, I was talking about before where what, what technique can you learn really quickly cost effectively? It may make sense to devote more of your time to that technique. And what can save you from being the victim of a knife attack? Is it going to be like just hardcore training with something like knives with electrified edges and you know, that kind of stuff? Maybe, <laughs> but I would say awareness and avoidance far, far more more uh, efficient than uh, as a self-defense system. Like you want to have that foundation in place and then maybe you can worry about blocking the blade and taking it away from the guy. I wouldn't really even want to try to do that stuff. So anyway, it's funny when you see a movie like Taken where, where Liam Neeson, apparently, even though he's been out of the CIA for, you know, decades or whatever, uh, I don't know what he's doing to keep his skills sharp. I don't know where the skills even came from, but he just takes the blade away, you know, after some perfect <laughs> choreography. I don't think so. And the, the training was pretty, it's gross motor skill. It's kind of Fairburns, I think it was his name, the World War II guy and Sykes, the two combatives guys who were tasked with coming up with a system of gross motor skill, easy to learn, easy to apply, techniques that could be taught to a, a huge variety of men quickly and men of different athletic abilities and backgrounds and all that kind of stuff. That's the kind of stuff that when I was going through SOTC, CIA was teaching, but it, it was just a few hours of training. It was no big deal. Oh, okay. So I don't think anything added that much to what I've done elsewhere. The awareness and avoidance training was extremely good at the time, by co in, in my opinion. At the time, by coincidence, I came across a writer named Mark McYoung, uh, and he had just published his first book. This is 1989. His first book uh, with then Paladin Press, I think they've gone out of um, business since then, but the book was called um, Cheap Shots, Violence, and Other Lessons. Or no, Cheap, Cheap Shots, Ambushes, and Other Lessons. That was it. 
the second one was violence, blunders, and fractured jaws. And, and Mark's a terrific writer. He's hilarious and insightful. He learned the hard way all the stuff that the CIA was trying to distill into lessons for its officers who would be working in various um, potentially hostile environments. And reading his book, I was like, oh, this is great. This is exactly what they're teaching in CIA. So I'm a big proponent of awareness and avoidance as being the foundations to any kind of self-defense system. You can learn them and practice them really cost-effectively. And I think they're actually far more important than your ability to punch yourself out of an ambush. Like avoiding the ambush, like Mr. Miyagi said, you know, when punch comes, don't, don't be there. there. It's actually <laughs> yep. great advice. You really found advice. Yeah, I mean, you could say it like, ha-ha, but if you think about it, it makes a lot of sense. That's what awareness and avoidance is is about. And um, and so that's the stuff the CIA taught that really effectively the physical stuff, yeah, it, was, it was very short. Would anyone who went through that training be able to use it? I'm not really sure. Well, I'll tell you a, a quick, funny story. Okay. And it's about how legends get started. So I mentioned my friend, Carl. Carl, in addition to being a former Marine Force recon, was a scary dude. Carl had a black belt in judo, a black belt in hapkido. He weighed, a, I would say Carl was about six feet, maybe 210, 215 pounds, solid muscle. Just, and not like a gym rat. The guy was just solid. He had a wandering eye, made him look a little crazy. Very intimidating guy. I remember I was once talking to a guy former Air Force, and then uh, he was, at the time I knew him, he was in, he was part of the CIA, and he was telling me about an, a bar that was near an Air Force base and a Marine base, and there used to be a lot of, um, be a lot of fights between the Air Force guys and the Marines, apparently, at this bar, and I said to him, oh yeah, Carl told me about that place, this guy, everybody knew Carl, and the guy said, oh, well, you have to understand, nobody messed with Carl, <laughs> so <laughs> Carl is just one of Guys, where if he just looked at you, you'd have to think very hard about whether you wanted a piece of this guy. Nice. But for what, for various reasons, we became pretty good friends. And um, because we both had some grappling experience, he had more judo experience than I did, but I had a decent amount at that point, plus the wrestling. Off hours, we used to get together to spar. And this was just two guys having fun nice. after the regular day was done. Yeah, it was great. It was really fun. Uh, they had mats, a huge gym, and they had mats, and so all that kind of stuff. Anyway, one night, Carl and I put on gloves, and we were sparring, like boxing sparring. And unusually, that night, I was getting the better of Carl. He was better than I was, and also just stronger, more skilled. But for whatever reason, either he was having a bad night, and I was having a good one, or both. And he got frustrated, and without meaning to hurt me, but we, we all know how this is. You just get frustrated, and you maybe try a little harder than you should have. Mm -hmm. he, he actually did. This wasn't just boxing. We were doing some karate stuff, too. He did a spinning back fist. And at that moment, I was tired and I dropped my, uh, my hands weren't where they should have been. My elbows were there. They were too low. And I was stepping in to punch him. So maybe like one of my arms, one of my hands just dropped back from my face. Anyway, the point of it is his elbow just spun and absolutely connected with the side of my nose and just about blew my nose off my face. Dang. And I'm telling you, like people think like, if I ask you, do you think your nose can move significantly from where it is in your face, like toward <laughs> your ear? Most people would say, I don't think so. Pretty well, you know, that's your nose. I'm telling you, your nose can be moved a lot. So I, I remember seeing this giant flash as you do when you get hit in the head, you know, the big white flash. And I staggered back and I said, I didn't even understand what had happened. I mean, it was just kind of shocked. And I said, hang on, hang on, I'm okay. And Carl said, Barry, you're not okay. Sit down. And a <laughs> second later, I just saw 
a boatload of blood like freaking squirting out of my face. And I remember a couple of things about this. It was interesting. One is it, it scared me to see that much blood coming out of me and particularly coming out of my face. And I, I'm really glad about this. The second after that, that adrenal feeling of fear, like, oh my God, this is bad. Almost like a voice came to me. I don't want to overstate it. It wasn't like it was coming from outside my body, but I could hear myself saying, Barry, calm down. You're not going to make this better by panicking. And it did. It calmed me down. I was like, just, just be calm. Not going to help you to get scared. And I did sit down like in a, you know, a controlled fashion and there was a lot of blood. And within not a long time, I recognized that my nose was broken. I mean, I couldn't see it. There wasn't a mirror, but I could sort of see it. Like if you look down you could see there's a problem. <laughs> yeah. So the reason this story is this. So Carl took me to the local hospital. This is in Williamsburg. This is Camp Perry, the farm. Carl took me to the local hospital and uh, to the emergency room and I got seen by a doctor who put stitches in the bridge of my nose because that's what was bleeding so much, I think. I mean, probably out of my nostril shoot, there was a big split right at the bridge of my nose. So the doctor put some stitches in. And as we're doing this, he was asking Carl questions. He's like, and again, Carl's a scary looking guy. I was a young guy. I was probably, what, 25 years old at the time or something. Mm -hmm. Carl was a little bit older, maybe 30, early 30s. And scary looking as Carl was. So the doctor saying to him, what are you guys, he knew where we were coming from. He said, so what were you guys doing up there? And Carl's just classified. I could tell you, but I'd have to kill you. And the doctor's <laughs> like, ha ha, but you know, that's more questions. <laughs> anyway, afterward, and I realized, so this is the story the doctor, I'm sure, is telling anybody who'll listen. Goes home that night, his wife's like, you know, how was your evening or whatever? And he said, well, let me tell you. You know, I don't know what goes on there at the farm, Camp Perry, but this big, scary looking guy brought in a young guy. And I don't know what kind of training they do there. I'm going to be intense. I mean, the, the, the young guy had his nose was just wrecked. You know? And so then legend is born of like, oh, you know, I don't know what kind of training they do with the CIA, but it's really intense, man. Like they, they really hurt each other. And awesome. the truth in my not really, it's, you know, we do, we did do some training there, but it was sensible and safe as you would want it to be. Mm -hmm. This was not part of the curriculum. It's just two, <laughs> two, two guys idiots. Having fun. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. But that's how legends get started. And it's all, it's pretty funny. That's um, awesome. I wound up uh, going to get the nose straightened a few days later. At the time, apparently the, the thinking was you should let the swelling go down a little bit before you try to straighten it. And apparently I healed pretty fast. So the nose had actually started to set up. By the time I saw a plastic surgeon, and I don't know, I'm just going to say it, calling this guy a plastic surgeon is, I feel like it's giving him more credit than he was due. He was, in fact, some sort of plastic surgeon, but this was the state of the art. And it's probably still the state of the art because it probably was the state of the art. 50,000 years ago, when we came down from the trees. You know, somebody breaks her nose and some, like, some other caveman goes to fix it. This is what it was. I'm simplifying, but only a little. I lay back in a dentist chair. He friggin' straddled my, he straddled me in the chair, put one hand, the palm of his hand against one side of my head to brace my head, put the palm of his hand on the other side of my nose where my nose was like bulging out hugely to my ear because it had been, you know, broken left to right. Mm -hmm. So put the palm of his hand on the right side of my nose and he just, just crunched my nose back oh. as close to true as he could get it, which was not all the way true, but reasonably close. That's it. That's the state of the art. They give you the, some injections of painkiller in your face, um, and they put two tubes up your nose to stabilize it, which itself was agonizing. But wow. that is a state of the art for fixing a nose that was broken like mine. And it, <laughs> let me tell you, it hurt. 
That was the worst pain I've ever experienced. My wife came in afterwards, and I will admit, I was crying like a baby. It totally unmanned me. I mean, yeah. Carl, I didn't cry or anything. I felt I, I teased him forever afterwards. I was like, I took your best shot. You couldn't knock me down. Although, in <laughs> fairness, I was out of he didn't knock me down, but yep. you know, I was like, I was a tough guy with a broken nose. But oh my god, when that doctor did what he did, I was just shaken by it. I was, I was. <laughs> my wife came in. I was like, the bad man hurt me. <laughs> he hurt me. <laughs> wow, it was bad. And okay, last thing about the story. Then I forget when, but a week or probably more like a month later, I went back for the follow up appointment. And my nose is no longer, it used to be straight. It's never been a, a pretty nose, I wouldn't say, or anything, but it did used to be straight. But now it wanders a little bit eastward as it, as it <laughs> continues down my face. Not so much. And to me, it doesn't change my appearance, and I don't care. But this plastic surgeon looked at me, and he's like, well, we couldn't get it all the way straight, but you know, next time we'll bring you back in and we'll straighten it. And I said, I would have to be dead for you to do anything in my nose again. And he was like, ha ha. But I was like, did I say anything funny? I would literally have to be dead to allow to do something like that to my nose ever again. Sorry, that was a really long answer to your question. That's hilarious. That's a great story. Oh, man, I love it. I would have loved to have seen the doctor's face. That's awesome. <laughs> it was all worth it. It was all worth it because it's a funny story now. Nice. Brian, can I tell you one more funny story? Absolutely, yeah. It's not true, but it is true. Go ahead. I know nobody, anybody who's listening to me, you don't know, you might think I make stuff up. And that's okay because a lot of people do make up stories. <laughs> um, so be as skeptical as you think is warranted. But sometimes people ask me when they learn that I've done some martial arts or like, did you ever use your martial arts? Did martial arts ever save your life? Yes. The answer is, I mean, and you know, usually what they're looking for is like, do you ever get in a fight? Did three ninjas ever attack you rappelling down the walls of an alley and you had to save your grandma and your baby? No, I never had anything quite like that. I mean, I, have, I had a few scrapes and the martial arts were useful and the awareness and avoidance skills have been a huge help. I don't know if those have saved me, but I have seen some situations that looked hinky to me. And I'm like, I don't, you know what? I don't need, I don't need to go into this um, place this late at night. I'll find a better place. I don't, I don't like the look of it, whatever. And on I go. Was anything going to happen? Don't know. We'll never know. But uh, awareness and avoidance, avoidance are your most cost-effective self-defense weapons, I think. Anyway, this is different. This is an example of judo, I'm sure. If it didn't save my life, then it did save me from terrible and maybe crippling injury. Okay, true story. April 2001, I was on a business trip in Tokyo. And I was working for a, a Silicon Valley startup at the time, a place called Dejima. And I, I don't even remember why I was over there. It was a business trip. But for years, I'd been working on the manuscript of what became my first book. It's called A Clean Kill in Tokyo, my first novel. been working on it for years. And I was pretty much done with um, the first manuscript. But because I was back in Tokyo where the novel is set, I wanted to refresh my recollection about a few settings in the manuscript, one of which was a street called Dogenzaka in Shibuya. For anyone who knows Tokyo, you'll, you'll know Shibuya, you'll know Dogenzaka. It's a hill in Shibuya. Okay. It's about 10 o'clock in the morning and I'm walking around refreshing my recollection because the novel opens on Dogenzaka. And then, okay, it's all good. And I needed a bathroom and there's a building I know because um, my wife and I had lived in Tokyo years earlier and had any number of, of business trips to Japan. I speak some Japanese a lot of reasons to go to Japan when I used to be a lawyer and then a startup executive. Okay. So I know this building, I think it was called Shibuya Prime. It's a mixed use, like movie theater offices and restaurants and whatnot. I know there's a bathroom on the second floor. So I went in, took the up escalator to the second floor to go to the bathroom, but it was about 10 in the morning. So the food court up there was closed. They weren't open for lunch yet. So I thought, oh man, no bathroom for me. I uh, got to go down. But the down escalator, which I could see wasn't operating, uh, I had to jump over a little glass partition to get to it. 
And it was confusing because I was like, look, it's just up escalators. How do I get down? And I still don't really know how I was supposed to get down, actually. But how do I get down? I don't know. But and I thought about running down the down escalator, but I thought I don't want to be the ugly American, you know, breaking the rules. <laughs> Japanese tend to take rules a little more seriously than Americans. And I was a visitor in the country and always wanted to comport myself respectfully. So I thought, ah, I don't want to run down the up escalator. Somebody will be coming up. They'll be like, oh, these crazy guy gene, whatever. But I see the down escalator on the other side of this glass partition that uh, it was effectively a staircase. It wasn't operating, but okay, I'll just hop over the glass partition and go down. Well, I hopped over the glass partition and what looked uh, to me like a floor on the other side of it wasn't a floor. It was a temporary glass or temporary plastic ceiling that had been erected to conceal the construction work that was going on below it. And I plunged, that thing couldn't have supported a big cat, I don't think. I mean, it was really just to, it wasn't intended to support anything. And I broke right through it and plunged 17 feet, seven inches. And I'll tell you how I know how... (laughs) how high it was in a second. Because I'll tell you what, because a month later I was back in Tokyo and I I brought a tape measure because I was so morbidly curious about how far I fell. 17 feet, seven inches, and I landed on bare concrete. And I know it sounds crazy. I know, I know people are like, I I don't blame anyone who hears this story. If you don't know me, you'll think you're full of it or you're exaggerating. And it's really okay. It doesn't bother me if you think that. The story is funny anyway. And I think there are some interesting lessons to learn from it. So here's the thing. Was I brave? I was not brave. But I wouldn't say I was cowardly either. This is the thing. When something like that happens to you, and this is my own experience, I'm I'm trying to derive a lot of principles from one set of data, but here's the set of data. When something like this happens to you, it's so shocking. It's so unexpected that your mind can't even react. I perceived that the floor opened up, but my mind couldn't process it. I had no reaction. I was just like, huh? I had no fear. I had no anything. It was just like, huh? And a split second later, Boom! I, I hit the ground. So there was no time to be afraid or to do any thinking of any kind. This is why I, I know that judo was involved. And again, I'm not trying to, I'm not presenting myself as some sort of, you know, my mastery of judo. You know, <laughs> I wasn't very good judo. I was barely a first degree black belt. But it is true that if you train in judo, you do countless Ukimi, breakfalls. I mean, all day long, you're doing breakfalls. And I think that suspended in midair, not having a clue, my body just assumed the position purely automatically because my injuries, which were very bad, albeit not life-threatening, my injuries were completely consistent with a perfectly executed Ukimi breakfall, albeit one executed from nearly 18 feet up. My ass was it was black as midnight and and so swollen you would have thought like somebody scrunched together two black beach balls wow. and, and swapped out my butt for that um i had black and blue all the way up my lower back my heels were bruised and my left elbow um was bleeding superficially i think because it got cut coming just by the plastic i broke through and my left palm was if not bruised it was it was hurt and i slightly favor a left side break fall if given a choice So my head did not even touch the floor, but I had whiplash because I hit so hard that my head rocketed into my shoulder. That's why you do a break fall the way you do it. So your head doesn't hit the mat. Mm -hmm. It's pretty incredible to consider that break fall will save you from, your head won't hit anything but your shoulder. So again, I had zero head injury, but uh, injury that was just like the whiplash you would get if you'd been T-boned in a car, took about 10 months for that to heal completely. Okay, this story is almost done. There were other things that interested me about it, but I should, I should just fast forward because it, it was sort of funny. I lay there for a moment and it was interesting. In retrospect, it's interesting. I was in what I would describe as a, as a quite primal state. 
I don't know that I even had words in my mind, but it was more like an awareness that a very bad thing happened. It was that almost childlike, like a bad thing had happened. I didn't know what the bad thing was, but a bad thing happened. And I lay there for, I'm not sure how long, and I wouldn't necessarily trust my perception of time, but I lay there for a minute going like, oh, oh, oh. Like I'd gotten the wind knocked out of me, but but a hundred times worse than it had ever been knocked out of me before. After some amount of time, maybe, I don't know how long, maybe half a minute or so, or a minute, I was able to get to my feet and staggered around and I was swearing like a sailor. And I think it was comforting to me, one, to get to my feet, I think it's an instinct, but not a good instinct necessarily. And I think what you're telling yourself on some levels, well, if I can get to my feet, it must not be that bad. I think that's why I got to my feet. I wasn't thinking. And then hearing my own voice, even though my voice was like, oh, shit, oh, my God, you know, like that. It was comforting because if you can talk, you know, you're not dead anyway, despite the bad thing that had happened, whatever it was. And then I think I realized that I must have fallen, even though I didn't understand how. And there was dust, I guess, that got kicked up from the impact. And I remember seeing my glasses, which got knocked off my head. And I thought, oh, I wouldn't want to lose those and pick those up and put them on. And I saw the paper that I'd been writing all my notes down on got blown out of my pocket. The physics of a fall like this, by the way, are quite interesting. Wow. Those papers, just, it was like computer paper, but folded in, into fours. Mm -hmm. um, it was folded in, in the pocket of my jacket. And the impact, it blew it out of my pocket. Like there must've just been a compression of air wow. that blew the papers out of my pocket. Really extraordinary. And I was carrying a little PDA. It was a Palm 5 pilot, I still remember. But think of it as a cell phone. You know, mm -hmm. it was what passed as a you know, future cell phone. Front of my pants, didn't hit the ground. My butt hit the ground the impact, the shock of the impact all the way through my butt and then through my thigh shattered the glass Dang. on that Palm Pilot and compressed it in place. It's really extraordinary, um, the physics of a fall like that. That's crazy. Anyway, okay, here's the last thing. This part was funny. So I staggered around and I picked up my notes and I'm thinking very banal thoughts, like quotidian thoughts. And I think, again, this is a way people comfort themselves when a bad thing happens. I, I don't know for sure. I haven't done a study, but I don't think I'm so special. I think this is probably common. If you're thinking about mundane things like, oh my, my goodness, those notes, I've been working on those notes for three days. I would hate to have lost them. Then how bad could it have been? And I, I think that was some of what was going on. But anyway, so I picked up my notes. Now I'm starting to realize what happened. I looked up, somehow I fell. I'm bleeding. Turned out from superficial cuts, but I didn't really know. And I wanted to look at myself. I wanted to get in front of a mirror to check my injuries. And I looked up and I saw two Japanese guys in hard hats and coveralls just staring at me <laughs> on the other side of this space, which wasn't that big a space if I'm remembering correctly, like maybe, maybe 15 foot square or something, 20 feet square. They were just staring at me, open mouthed. And so thinking, oh, great, these guys all know where a bathroom is. I walked over to them and said, which is very polite Japanese for, pardon me, could you tell me where the restroom might be? <laughs> and they just stared at me with zero reaction, just, you know, not <laughs> agape. And I started to get frustrated with them. I'm explaining, like, look, I fell. I, I think I'm hurt. I want to see myself in a mirror. Can you tell me where the restroom is? And they absolutely didn't react. They were like statues. And again, I was like, what is wrong with these guys? Like I'm, my Japanese was, I would never describe my Japanese as fluent, but it was pretty good. Mm -hmm. And I knew what I was saying was, is not complicated Japanese. It was perfect. My accent was decent. So I'm like, what, what? Then a third guy came out and he hadn't seen what happened, but he wasn't in shock and he, he got me to a bathroom. Anyway, only afterwards did I think about it. And a couple things about this interested me. One is I would say that being hurt like this put me in a relatively primitive state. Primitive meaning 
all I could think about was my perspective and everything that I was feeling and perceiving was obvious to me and everyone else in the world should have been able to see it exactly the way I did. It didn't occur to me that these guys, from their perspective, you know, they didn't know what happened. From their perspective, they're just going about their business and this white guy suddenly burns through this, like blasts through the ceiling, or not the ceiling, whatever that plastic was, burns into the concrete, boom, you know, dust, a crash. And then the white guy gets up, staggers around going, oh, oh, and they're like, what is going on? And then he walks over to them and asks them in perfect, polite Japanese, pardon me, would you be able to tell me where the restroom is located? And they just could not, they, that was their experience, what I had just been through. They couldn't process it. They just couldn't process what was happening. It made no, it made no sense to them whatsoever. And they, they just couldn't respond. I joke, I, I could have reached into their pockets and taken their wallets and thanked them profusely and left. And I don't think they would have been able to do anything about it. They were, they were as much shock as I had been in. So, and I'm sure they're, I'm sure they're still telling the story. They must be. Um, I'd love to hear and, their, and version, their version believe. of the story be hilarious. <laughs> I, I, exactly. Exactly. So anyway, I did, I learned some, I thought there were some interesting things about this, about what happens when you're badly injured. And again, it's only my one experience. I don't want to um, extrapolate too much, but, mm -hmm. but I think it's probably common. You probably stand up, you probably vocalize stuff because it's comforting. You probably think quotidian things because it's comforting and you'll be at your least Dale Carnegie ever. Probably <laughs> it's hard to get yourself out of your own head. Now, look, if you were in a car accident, and your child's injured, that's a different story. But if it's, or someone you love, you know, mm -hmm. but this is, if it's just you and you have nothing to worry about, then I think you have the luxury of degenerating into a pretty primitive state. <laughs> that was my experience anyway. That's awesome. I'm pretty sure judo saved my life. That's good though. So you, you mentioned Japan, you mentioned judo. Just talk a little bit about training at the, the Kodokan. What was that like? It was a dream come true. Almost in a literal sense that it felt like a dream. I've been telling this to my, to my daughter, Emma, since she was little. Here's what makes the Kodokan so special in, in my experience. So anybody who knows about judo and you know about the Kodokan, it's the Mecca of modern judo. It's not the original building, but, it, but it's where Jigoro Kano first like implemented his first judo institute and where it's the starting place of worldwide judo. And people from all over the world who are just fanatic or fanatical about judo, they find a way to go there and train for however long all over the world. So I was one of those people I wasn't quite as fanatical as some because I was only there for a year and I wasn't nearly as talented or skilled as many, but the culture you get from a place like this, and it doesn't have to be judo. We could be talking about anything, mm -hmm. but the culture you get at the Kodokan is like nothing I've ever experienced before or since because everybody there is there for love. I've since, you know, I worked at a law firm, I was a lawyer and it was just a different kind of culture. It was not that it wasn't an interesting culture. There were a lot of really smart people with freakishly strong analytical ability. And it was, it was just interesting to engage with a group like that, but it wasn't a culture that was built on, on love and passion. The Kodokan is a culture that's built on love and passion for a, a common endeavor, which is judo. So I trained there hardcore six days a week and uh, I rarely missed a night. I chose... <laughs> My wife and I lived in a part of Tokyo called Sengoku, which, and my office was in a part of the city called Kasumigaseki. So for anyone who knows Tokyo, imagine this, my office was in the center of the city and the Kodokan is north of that, like the northeastern side of the city. And so when I was looking for an apartment for us to live in, I didn't know anything about Tokyo. All I wanted was for the apartment to be on the other side of the Kodokan. So every night on the way back, 
from the office, I would have, I, I'd go right past the Kodokan. It'd be convenient for me to you know, get off the train and, and train. Nice. So now we're living in Sengoku and Sengoku's old Tokyo. And there's, it's not, it's not like famous old Tokyo. It's just a little neighborhoodly place. We were the only, at least the only white or non-Asian foreigners who lived there. There might've been some who we didn't recognize as foreigners, but we were the only visibly foreign people who lived in so Sengoku, so we're a little bit of an oddity. And we became friends with foreigners who lived in various foreigners and Japanese, but various farm, foreigners who lived in Tokyo. And over time, my wife was like, why do all those foreigners live in the west of the city, like Roppongi and Ebisu and Hiro and all that stuff? And I was like, well, because I wanted to train at the Kodokan. She's initially <laughs> read about that because where we lived wasn't nearly as convenient there there just weren't the kind of english language speaking people i mean it was a real japanese neighborhood but over time when we look back we're really glad we had that experience it was much less convenient it was much more authentic and meaningful in the end it was a great experience anyway every night five nights a week and then saturday mornings get out at um uh the, the kodokan exit and kasuga and train for two hours, one hour in the foreigner's class where we would learn whatever. And then for the second hour in the Dai Dojo, big, meaning big dojo, that's the competition hall, like four uh, competition size, judo mats surrounded by uh, spectator stands. And I cannot adequately convey the, like, the beauty and majesty and electricity of getting to train in this place. I remember every night, like jogging up the stairs to the Dai Dojo and feeling like I was in a movie about my own life. I just could not believe I was training judo at the Kodokan. It was magical and, uh, and wonderful. And, and still to me sets the standard for the kind of culture that anyone would be privileged to be a part of for however, however, how, how long. When my daughter was a teenager, she, she got really into the beats. So she was reading um, Jack Kerouac and there's a famous quote of his from uh, On the Road, and I don't remember it verbatim, but it's something like, the only ones for me are the mad ones, the ones mad to talk, mad to do something, uh, mad to be saved, who never yawn or say a commonplace thing, but burn, 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 something like that. Mm -hmm. He's better than that, but that's my recommendation. That's awesome. And not that my daughter Emma needed, she, not that she needed so much encouragement in this regard, it just seems to come naturally to her, but I'm like, don't spend your time with people who say common, like try to avoid people who say commonplace things and are doing what they do just kind of as a road or maybe just to pay the bills. I mean, we all have bills to pay. You got to do what you got to do, mm -hmm. but try to be a part of a cult where the people are like, they're there and they're like, Oh my God, I'm, I'm at this place. I knew people who came from the Philip. I knew a guy from the Philippines whose job he, he lived in a tiny apartment so narrow. He said there was an earthquake and he was able, he put his hands out and touched both walls of the space he lived in, just trying to stabilize himself. That's how tiny it was. His job was setting up bowling pins. I knew another guy who worked at a car wash, two Iranian guys who were selling who were selling rugs in Tokyo, a Malaysian guy who worked at a gas station. Like these are people, they didn't care what they did. They just needed to make enough money so they could buy a tiny, no matter how crappy little apartment. All they cared about was that they trained like maniacs at the Kodokan. And now imagine hundreds of people like that every night. And that is the Kodokan. That's, that's so the cool. place. It was cool. So I, I definitely want to get a little bit into your books, obviously, because that's that's such a big part of your life. And well, I'm curious about your, your your first book and the character John Rain and and what what led to the decision to make him a martial artist, also, and kind of how how he was created. Yeah, it wasn't so much a decision as it just came naturally. And this is, I think, a lesson 
a principle that that other people who want to become if you want to become a writer if you're thinking about writing this might apply to you you might find this useful so when i started what became my first manuscript became the first book at the time it was released it was called rainfall now it's called a clean kill in tokyo uh so this is 1993 and my wife laura and i were living in tokyo and i was just besotted by that city i've never had metropolitan first love at first sight the way i did with tokyo i couldn't tell you why I mean, I could tell you reasons, and they're not invalid reasons, but who really knows? There's always something underneath that. But we were becoming friends with some Japanese people, like one guy, my office mate, who was really into jazz. And so he was taking us to these fantastic, they're called live houses, live houses, jazz club. So we're getting into jazz and the whole live house experience. We ourselves were discovering some wonderful coffee places. Like this is before Starbucks, but Japan had a really, like a, the, the Kisaten some people who took their coffee really seriously and um, and some wonderful tiny bars that we got introduced to. And of course the Kodokan. And since I was a kid, I've had an interest in what I now loosely call forbidden knowledge, which is uh, knowledge that the government wants restricted only to a select group of individuals and doesn't want most people to know about. I got this idea, by the way, when I was 10, I was reading a biography of, of Harry Houdini. And I still remember this line from the biography, a cop was quoted as saying, it is fortunate that Houdini never turned to a life of crime because if he had, he would have been difficult to catch and impossible to hold. And I thought, <laughs> that's so cool. This guy on his own acquired these skills that make law enforcement like, wow, good thing he's one of the good guys because we would have had a real hard time with this guy. And that's just, that was, I don't know, an instant interest for me even as a kid. That's awesome. So over time, I acquired... Um, arguably forbidden. <laughs> Thank you. It's, uh, who knows where these things come from? But when they speak to you loudly, you should probably listen. So I acquired some forbidden knowledge along the way. Some of the stuff I learned at the CIA. I mean, I don't, I don't want to overstate. I can't even do these things. I probably couldn't even done them at the time, like improvised explosive devices. I don't even remember. I'd be hard pressed. Although I do remember one funny moment where <laughs> we're learning how to make improvised explosive devices. And someone asked the instructor, how would you disarm this? And the instructor said, I would call someone who cares. <laughs> that was awesome. Wow. <laughs> That's crazy. Anyway, I would be far away and I would call someone who cares. So, but then I amassed all these books from Paladin Press and Panics Unlimited, really weird stuff like the Death Investigators Handbook and How to Kill, Kill Without Joy, Be Your Own Undertaker. I could go on. I had some wacky books. I just find them entertaining. And I think what happened is this. All this, I used to and still do read obsessively about what you might loosely think of as like current events, just mm -hmm. political stuff, stuff that's happening in the world. And I think what was happening was all these interests of mine, the forbidden knowledge, the CIA, tradecraft training, surveillance and counter surveillance, the martial arts, specifically judo, the Kodokan, and, and just that drunken feeling of being in love with Tokyo and all the different aspects of the city. All of this, in retrospect, I look at it as a kind of kindling that was building up in my mind or that I was building up in my mind without really conceiving of it as kindling uh, or anything that I was trying to build in my mind. But I was building up in my mind because I, I was constantly indulging these passions of mine. And then one day on my way to work in Tokyo, this image came to me of two men following another man down the street, Dogenzaka and Shibuya. I wasn't there, but, but that's where the image was set. And it was a vivid image it really stayed with me throughout the day. And I started thinking about it and asking myself questions, which is another principle I realized in retrospect about where stories come from and how you tease them out. The questions I was asking myself was, were like this. 
okay, so two men following another man down the street in Dogen's outfit, but why? Why are they following that guy? And an answer came to me. I was like, oh, they're assassins. They're going to kill him. And that felt like the right answer to me because apparently that's just the way my mind works. Uh, my wife, Laura, likes to make fun of me for that. She's like, you know, other people would have been like, oh, maybe the guy dropped his wallet. They want to help him. I'm like, sorry, you dropped your wallet. You're like, oh, they're going to kill him. Well, you know, apparently so. I have to cop to that. That's just how I'm wired. But anyway, so then there's an answer. Well, they're assassins. They're going to kill him. But then, but then that should only lead to more questions. And it did. I was like, well, but okay, but what did he do? Uh, who hired them? How did they become assassins? I mean, how do you become an assassin? You just, you go to assassin school? Like, where do you, what kind of background? So what happened was like, the more I, as answers began to pre present themselves to me, satisfying answers, but at the same time, they led to more curiosity and more questions. And that is how, when I teach writing, that's one of the things I teach people to do. Your quest, you got to ask the fundamental questions, whatever it is you sense about your story that you've already figured out or that just came to you by, by God's grace or, or inspiration or whatever something in the story that feels like it could be a story came to you. And now what you need to do is you need to start subjecting that thing to who, what, where, when, why, and how the basic questions. Those are the questions that those are your guides. That's how you'll find your way into and through the story, just by ruthlessly subjecting every answer to those questions. And what's interesting is what I just described is the flip side of the coin of being seduced by a story. Because if you open any story, if you look at the opening of any story, you'll see that this sequence plays out, but in reverse. So when I teach writing, I like to use the, the best opening I've ever encountered. Obviously, some of this is a question of taste, but not all of it. There are objective principles at work here. Ken Follett's book, The Key to Rebecca. And for anybody who wants to see, anybody who wants to learn how you seduce a reader into a story, how an absolute master craftsperson does that using these principles of spooling out information of who, what, chiefly who, what, and where, which is characters, plot, and setting. The opening of Key to the Key to Rebecca, it's never been done better. And I'll just give you a really quick example. The first sentence, first paragraph of this, this story is just six words. And those six words are, the last camel collapsed at noon. And I'm not going to go deep on this. I could, because mm -hmm. I'll teach an hour-long class using just the first paragraphs of Ken Follett's story. There's so much craft to mind from what he was doing here. But what I do is I say this, every story is three things, arguably a few other things, but really it's three basic fundamental things, which are who, what, and where. That's a story. Should a story have why and things like that? Yes, but, but I don't wanna get into that. Okay, it's who, what, mm -hmm. and where, we all know this. It's characters in a place and a thing happened and there's like complications and conflict and those, that's the plot, all right, just fundamentally. But I have to find a way to seduce you out of your waking world, which in which you have lots of concerns and cares and things like that, into the world of my story. So that means I need to unspool. I need to I need to bring you into and ground you in the world, my world of who, what, and where. How do you do that? By giving you critical information, by feeding you critical information about those three things, who, what, and where, but by ensuring insidiously that every piece of information I give you that nourishes you and draws you into my story paradoxically makes you hungry for more. And you can see this at work in Ken Follett's opening to the key to Rebecca, because there are things you sense, you can't be sure of, but it makes you curious for more. So let's talk about setting. You don't know, he didn't say it, but the last camel collapsed at noon. Where do you think the story is set? You get a sense. What do you, if you had to guess, is it? Middle East, probably. Probably. And what kind of environment? Is it the beach? Is it a? Desert. Probably desert. Exactly. So he's engaging a part of your mind 
inherently where you start to feel like you start to envision it. I think we're in a desert. You don't, it's just not conscious that you, this is just storytelling grammar that everyone, we humans just have. And so a part of your mind gets engaged in interest. Oh, I think we're in, I think we're in the desert. So oh, cool. That's the, that's the where of it. You're starting to get engaged in the, what of it, the plot, the complication is this, a camel just collapsed. Uh, does that sound like a good thing or a bad thing? Probably a bad thing. I think most people would say probably a bad thing, yeah. especially because, and this, this is what's so gorgeous about his word choice. He doesn't immediately tell you what number camel or whatever. He says the last camel. So what do you know from that? If the last camel collapsed, well, that means there have been some number of camels before this one, probably at least two others, because you wouldn't say like, we don't usually talk about like the first one and the last one. You can, but more commonly, we'd be talking about at least three. So what you can deduce from this is that there were at least three camels. We don't know why exactly. It's probably in a desert, but that they've all collapsed and the last one just collapsed and by the way he says the last camel collapsed at noon so it's not night in the desert it's high friggin noon in the desert probably in the desert and somebody's last camel just collapsed <laughs> he doesn't give you in the first sentence anything about the who that comes next in the next sentence but and and there's no right or wrong answer about what combination or what order you want to start spooling out those critical elements of who what and where Follett in his first sentence focuses on where and what, and then gets to the who. Again, no right or wrong answer. But that first sentence starts drawing you in by giving you critical information, necessary grounding information, where and what. But the real mastery, the artistry, is that nourishment he gives you famishes you for more. So you've got to keep reading. And I could go on and on about this, like I said, but if anyone's curious, if geez, I'd really like to learn how to, how to do a great opening, take the principles that I just talked about they're tools now. You can use these tools to analyze other openings. Get the book and read the first page. And you'll see that what I'm talking about, you'll see Follett doing it in every sentence, every paragraph, every bit of information that tells you more about where we are and what's going on and who the guy is who's in trouble. Every bit of information he gives you makes you hungry for more. That's what makes you keep reading. So it makes you keep turning the pages. That's what a great story is. And Ken Follett is a great storyteller. Anyway, that's the... You know what? Can I say one last thing, Brian? Yes. I know I'm talking too much. Wrong no, stuff. no way. <laughs> You're good. Connections really interest me. And so when, when my mind makes connections, I, or I talk a lot. But here's a connection that I made recently. I think a lot of people find this interesting, whether you're a martial artist or a writer or both, or anything you're trying to do where you're trying to develop a skill. A commonality I've noticed, and I apologize because maybe this is obvious in retrospect. A lot of people have already figured this out. But for me, it was a revelation, at least the articulation of it. It's this. Any skill you're trying to learn is at a high level going to involve three things, three general things. It's not so clear cut as this, but just for purposes of, of um, understanding. It's theory, drills, and free practice or free training. So in martial arts, we, we, I think we pretty instinctively, if you're trained in martial arts, you'll, you'll be, oh yeah, I know what you're talking about. Like when I was doing judo, I bought a lot of books on judo and some of them were really specific, like, like books on strangles very specific information about how you distract from what you're trying to do with the strangle and how you slide that strangle and blah, blah, blah. Now, reading that book was pure theory. It's helpful. If all you do is read a book on strangles, I seriously doubt you're going to be able to do one in, even in, in a relaxed setting, certainly not in a competition or a more consequential one. But still, that is the theory and the theory is important. The theory is helpful. And then there's drills. And we know what drills are. Drills in judo would be like entry drills. You've, you're taking your opponent's 
sleeve and lapel and you're practicing your Harai Goshi entry, like boom, you know, you kind of crash into his chest, reset, enter, reset, enter. That's a drill. It's it's real movement. And maybe, and of course, you might even start to build in some resistance into drills, but still it's constrained. It's it's not wide open. It's got a certain like dance steps to it. And then there's free practice and that's sparring of whatever kind in judo, that's randori, randori. And um, in boxing, we all know what it looks like. You know, you're wearing headgear and a mouth guard and you're, you're not going quite as hard as you're going to go in a competition match. But you're going pretty hard right. or there's a range of it, but that's like the free practice. It's wide open. There's no, other than the rules of the sport itself, you're really doing it. And again, it's not so clear cut as all three of these things. You can have pretty light sparring or you could have pretty heavy drills, whatever. But these three things combined, there's some optimum combination of these things that will maximize your progress toward acquiring a skill. Different people, different arts, going to be different combinations. But in all arts, some combination of these three things will lead to the, the most rapid and surest progress. And this is true in writing too. And so for anybody who wants to be a writer, it's true for acquiring a foreign language. I won't, I won't break it down with every example. There's no need to. But with writing, I'll, I'll say this because it's important. If you want to learn to write, whatever kind of writing, it could be nonfiction, but I'm going to stick with fiction for a second. The same principles will apply. You want to write fiction. Oh, I, I have an idea for a novel and I want to write a novel. Okay. You got theory, and there's a lot of great theory out there, a lot of great books on writing, how-to books, and also a lot of great videos on the how-to of writing a novel, and also great courses. Uh, there's a guy named Robert McKee who's, who's written a number of terrific books on storytelling, and he also teaches a number of great courses. I've read his books, and I've taken the courses, and, and what McKee teaches is the theory of storytelling. It won't alone make you a storyteller taking his courses or reading his books or watching his videos, but but the theory is a shortcut. Okay, what's the free practice in writing? That one's easy. It's writing. You've got to write. You can't be a writer if you don't write. You've got to practice the writing. And it's hard. It's hard in a different way than somebody trying to punch you in the face. It doesn't hurt that way. It hurts yep. in other ways. You've got to do the free practice. Otherwise, you're not going to, you just won't progress. But the bridge between theory and free practice is always drills. And the drills of writing, which I don't think enough people are as aware of this step as they should be and probably don't derive as much as they could from it. It's this. Just what I talked about with Ken Follett's book a second ago. Find the kind of writing you want to do, the kind of story you want to write, or the kind of screenplay you want to write or whatever. It doesn't matter. Like the thing you want to write, find an example of that, something you love. Like, And I read political thrillers, actually. So uh, so Ken Follett's not, you know, with, with assassins and skullduggery and exotic locations and martial arts and all that kind of stuff. So Ken Follett's not a bad template for me, not a bad exemplar. And what I got in the habit of doing is taking books that were like the ones I wanted to write. I don't want to be imitated, but that's okay, too, actually. That's how you learn to paint. You imitate the works of the great master. That's how you learn brushstrokes. And then eventually you can start tweaking those brushstrokes as an expression of your own soul and your own art. You start by imitating that. There's nothing wrong with that. There's everything right about it. You don't want to end up imitative. But to learn art, you do imitate, and that's part of the drills. Anyway, so I try to break down. What is Ken Follett doing here? Like, what is the magic trick behind the magic? I know what the magic is. I love this book. I couldn't put it down. But what's the magic trick? What's he doing? What's the principle that you can glean if you look for it hard enough and that you can start to replicate as a craftsperson yourself? That's what I would recommend almost than anything else. You do have to write if you want to be a writer. And the theory, the books and videos and courses on theory will help you. 
but the in-between. Read the passages, the books, the screenplays, whatever, that are the ones that inspire you, that you love, and that you want to do something like that. And look for the craft, the principle, the magic trick behind the magic. It's in there, and you can figure it out. And reading the books on theory will help with that. And free practice will help with that too. And the three things combined is the most effective way to acquire a skill as efficiently as possible. I'm pretty sure that's true for any skill, musical instrument, mm-hmm. language, or whatever. I haven't really tested this theory, but I'm pretty sure it's true for all skills. That's great. And, and Brian, thank you for listening to me. Oh, no, I'm going to have to have my daughter. My daughter loves writing, so I'm going to make sure she listens to, to this interview for sure. Anything I said useful to her. Thank you. A few kind of like fun questions to wrap it up here in all your years, yeah. all, all your martial arts, all the different styles you've done and you know, living in Japan. Is there one philosophy you learned that stands out? You know, there's something that just popped into my mind, but I'm not sure it's really like, a, oh, this is from this or that martial arts mm-hmm. philosophy. So I'm not sure if this is what you're looking for, but I'm going to say it anyway, because I think it'll be really valuable to anybody who's trying to make progress in uh, acquiring martial arts skills or any other skill you're trying to acquire. And it's this, you don't acquire a major life skill by like moving into a cabin or going to the Shaolin temple or whatever, you know, and studying with the monks. I'm not saying it's never been done. Mostly it gets done in movies like Batman, when you know, Bruce um, goes to the mountain or whatever. But I'm not saying it's never been done. I'm not saying no novel has ever been written by somebody dropping everything and moving to a cabin in the, in the mountains. But I know a lot of writers, and every one of them who I know wrote that novel a spare hour at a time, getting up early, making time from four to five in the morning, if that's what it took every morning or whenever. For me, my, my black belt, which again, I got it right before I moved back to the States from Tokyo. So I feel like I, I even at my best, I was a baby shodan in in judo i never progressed beyond just getting the black belt but to get from zero not zero i had some grappling experience but zero in judo to um shodan in judo in one year that's you know that's significant i mean that's pretty mm-hmm. significant progress not miraculous but it's, it's i think it's pretty respectable and um how do you do that by training two hours a day every day that's how by showing up every day if you have 15 minutes, make it 15 minutes. If you have to miss a day, then you missed a day. Don't be too hard on yourself. But regular practice is how you do it. You want to write a novel? Try to set aside that hour a day. Hey, two is better, but it's hard to find two. Judo, a foreign language, a musical instrument, learn how to paint. I don't know. Whatever it is you want to do. Regular showing up and making it regular is huge. And I, I don't know. So that's the most important thing. I'm like, don't think, this is advice I've also given my daughter. Don't think about the big bad thing you're trying to accomplish. Like, oh my God, those those black belts are so badass. I'll never get that. Or, oh my God, a whole novel, 400 pages, 100,000 words. Ah, it's, I'm scared. I can't do it. What I've told M is I've written 18 novels and four short stories and a bunch of screen and teleplays too. And every time I sit down to write a novel, I've been doing this for 20 years. I've been in the game for a pretty long time. But every time I start a novel, I'm like, oh my God, I cannot do this. The cursor says, or, you know, the little tool, but it's zero words or whatever, three words, because I wrote the title of the novel <laughs> and I got to write a hundred thousand more words and do it. But here's the secret. And again, it's true for, it's true for martial arts. If you're trying to progress in martial arts. Don't think about the big goal, plan the work and work the plan. Today's element, today's portion of the plan is, I don't care what it is, write 50 words. It's not a lot of words. Eventually my, my working pace is like 2000 words. But at the beginning, I'm like, you wrote 100 words. 
It's hard at the beginning. I'm not sure where it's going. That's great. I pat myself on the back. Show up tomorrow, write another hundred. It adds up faster than you think. That's true for all kinds of practice. And I think remembering that keeps you going because you won't see a tremendous amount of progress on any given day. And that can be dispiriting. You have to believe that it will accrue if you just stay with it regularly. At some point, a month, a year, you're going to look back and you'll be amazed at the progress you've made. And that becomes heartening and it becomes fuel to keep you going. But you got to get to that first milestone. That's probably the most important thing I've learned out of martial arts, uh, writing novels and that kind of stuff. That's great. I like it a lot. So what are your thoughts on MMA and the UFC? And are you a fan? I used to be a huge fan. It's not, I wouldn't say it's not that it's not like I'm an anti-fan now. Mm-hmm. It's just my interests. Uh, uh, I'm more interested in other stuff okay. these days, but I, I, I'll tell you a quick, very quick story. You won't believe me this quick, but it is quick. Mm-hmm. I trained with the Gracies in 1991 and 1992 before the UFC, before anyone knew who those guys were. And um, it was such an honor. And they are, so, they are such great teachers. This was really a special experience because I saw they had an ad. I don't remember where I saw it. I had, maybe both was 1992 because I remember I had, I'm pretty sure I had recently left the CIA, but it doesn't matter. Anyway, I saw this ad somewhere and it was it was Horian, Hickson, Hoyler, Hoyce. And I feel like I'm forgetting one of the five like original brothers names. Mm-hmm. And I'm embarrassed. It's been a while and I forgot, but it doesn't matter. It was like the five big brothers, you know, like the, the sons of, um, of Helio Great. Yep. And they all look badass in their, in their geese and their red belts, their arms crossed in front of them. And they said something like, we'll give $10,000 to anybody who can, whatever. And we're teaching a seminar. The Gracie challenge. And I had a little time on my hands. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, I, you know, I forget, was it the Gracie challenge involved or what they said, but also we're going to be t- teaching a two day seminar. Yeah. So I went and it was in New York city. And then they did another one that was in Philadelphia and I went to both and they were such great teachers and such great guys were such nice people. And oh my God, I mean, does it even need to be said what they're able to do on the mat? And I'm a reasonably experienced grappler. At the time I was a reasonably experienced grappler. It felt supernatural to me. It felt like magic, but it isn't, it isn't magic. It can be taught like, you know, like writing anything that feels like magic, there's a magic act behind it. But anyway, it was a really, it was a pretty special experience to get to train with those guys. I don't remember what question you asked, but something having to do. Just like, if you what, were a fan of the UFC. Today. Oh, sorry. That's right. So then when these guys started the UFC in 1993, I was aware of them and aware of the UFC. And I thought it was a fantastic idea. And I loved it. I loved the early days where you got to see, you know, an actual sumo wrestler fighting a Kung Fu guy or whatever. Yeah. Pretty quickly, people realized that they had to have some kind of grappling game. And we all know what happened with MMA since then. The, the art evolved. So so people have preferences, but there's going to be a huge, just like an 80, actually, I could be wrong about this. I don't really study MMA or, or I'm, I don't watch it the way I used to. But my guess is that for every top MMA competitor, there's probably about an 80% overlap of skill set. Like there's an 80% thing you've got to be able to do mm-hmm. that involves some degree of grappling, submission grappling, boxing, tie boxing, jujitsu, some 80%. And then 20% is going to be, different people are going to like, there's going to be a Sambo guy and there's going to be somebody who's just got some freakishly good, I don't know, capoeira spinning kicks or whatever. That's my sense of where the art, where the sport went. So, and it's fantastic. I think um, as a sport, I think it's fantastic. And, you know, it's the same test I I used for myself when I was a teenager and I didn't want to get, I wanted to be able to handle myself and not get picked on. And I looked at the wrestlers and I was like, I wouldn't want to mess with those guys. Okay, that's a pretty good test and I'll become one of them. Mm-hmm. I mean, who would want to mess with a UFC guy? I wouldn't. Right. <laughs> 
I mean, their skills are formidable. They're used to everything that you could dish out within reason. I'm not talking about combat. I'm talking about more like a fight or social violence or whatever. Even in actual combat, Bruce Lee said the best preparation for the event is the event. Again, there's profound wisdom in there. So if you're talking about combat, you can't really train with combat. The losses would be too high. Right. But the closer you can reasonably get to combat, the better prepared you'll be. And I would say UFC is fits the bill in my regard. So that's why I think about UFC. I think okay. in short, good, great sport, nice, so much fun to watch, and and great for self defense. All right. So who? Now this doesn't have to be four. It, I've had as few as two and as many as eight. Who are you know three, four, five names you would put on your personal Mount Rushmore of martial arts? Well, he'd be embarrassed to hear me say it, but I'm going to say it anyway. It's a guy I'm friends with. His name is Wim Demir, and Wim is an incredibly he's just an unusual human, an exceptional human, one of the best martial artists and teachers I've ever trained with. Classic training in Tai Chi. So he's got that foundation and then all sorts of other systems. If Wim messes around with you and he wants you and, and he wants you to think he's a traditional boxer or MMA guy or whatever, his skills in all these different areas are such that you would actually think, oh my God, you must have uh, you must have cut your teeth with boxing or Thai boxing, or whatever. And now it's actually Tai Chi, a really great guy, super insightful and such a good teacher. And I don't hold that many things sacred, but teaching I do hold sacred because it's this incredible shortcut that someone's offering you maybe for free, maybe for a few dollars in the scheme of things. And what they're giving you might've taken them a lifetime to acquire. Nice. By the way, the time that this notion of teaching is something sacred, the time this first came to me, I was training at the Kodokan and I was trying to put in a strangle on a guy. This is in the Daidojo during free practice. I was trying to put a Sankakuje, a triangle strangle it's called in uh, jujitsu. People who recognize what that is, but my knee was not where it should have been. My, my knee was not like at the center or the back of his neck. It was off to the side. And so the strangle wasn't that effective. And this old timer who I became sort of friendly with is a bit of a character who since died because this was a lot of years ago. And he was probably 70 at the time. He gets up off the side of the mat, comes over and he's like, uh, uh, and he grabs me by the leg and he's like, like this, like this. And he twists me so that my knee is in the correct position and instantly just moving me just a few inches. Suddenly the strangles, completely different technique, instant tap. And I remember walking home that night from the train station and thinking, I don't want to say it was a miracle, it was a miracle exactly, but I just thought it was miraculous and beautiful that this guy had been on the mat for half a century or maybe longer for free. He just came over and gave me that knowledge. And I thought, that's a really special thing. So um, I try to pay that forward. And, uh, and Wim has certainly paid it forward for me. So I'm sorry, Wim, if you ever listen to this. Uh, you're modest with no particular reason to be modest, but I'll put you on my Mount Rushmore for martial arts. Nice. I would definitely put the Gracies up there because I feel like the injection of, look, let's stop having these theoretical conversations about who would win between a Wushu master and, uh, you know, and a judo master of boxing or whatever. Like, let's, let's see. Maybe you'll never really know for sure, but it's, it's sure been a fun ride uh, getting some real world data on that. And I got a lot of reality-based self-instructors I could name, but I feel like if I name them, I'll leave some out and I'll feel bad. Mm -hmm. So I'm not going to name any of those. But I feel like in the late 80s, a number of guys started coming to the fore, bringing a certain degree of reality back into the martial arts. I'm not putting any kind of traditional martial arts down. Traditional mm -hmm. martial arts came out of reality. But it may be that there was a certain mentality where martial arts were getting a little bit away from reality and a little too focused on what went on in the dojo. And there's nothing wrong with that if you know why you're doing it and you're getting the right training that's synced up with your objectives. 
But I think a lot of people were looking for something that could help them a little bit more out in the world on the street. And I'm grateful for all those free thinkers and instructors who brought back some of that reality and combined it with traditional martial arts to make them more useful, uh, traditional martial arts more immediately useful for street stuff. Nice. Okay. All right. This one, you mentioned some judo books. Do you have a favorite martial arts book? Um, I, you know, I, I gotta say, I mentioned Mark McYoung's book a little while mm-hmm. ago, Cheap Shots, Ambushes, and Other Lessons. It was an eye-opening book for me, and I've since read a ton of stuff Mark's written and watched his videos, and a lot of other people who've written in this, what I think you could call generally the genre of reality-based self-defense. But Mark's book, and this is 1989, so I think he was a little bit ahead of the curve. Okay. I mean, I'm not saying there were other books like this out there. It's not like I've done a study. But that one made a huge impact on me, so I'll, I'll mention that one. Perfect. Now, this one you may not have an answer for. Some, some do, some don't. Do you have a favorite martial arts video game? Did you get into video games much? <laughs> I, I don't. I'm not okay. much of a video game player. All right, no worries. How about a favorite martial arts TV show? I haven't. It's weird. For a guy who writes novels with uh, some pretty well-received scenes that I think it's fair to say I'm known for combining you know, traditional martial arts and like combat experience and reality-based mm-hmm. elements to these encounters I depict in my books. I don't know that I've watched that many TV shows with martial arts, probably more movies. And even here, I'm probably going to forget more than I remember because I've seen a lot of martial arts movies. <laughs> well, that's the next question. I'll, Favorite I'll martial arts that. movie. So. <laughs> okay. So that's going to be easier for me. Look, look, I saw the pilot of the, all right, I saw the pilot of the TV show Warrior, the good. one that's set in San Francisco, Chinatown. Yep. You know, I got to go back to it because I really like the pilot. And for whatever reason, I didn't keep watching the show. But I really like the martial arts sequences. It's more like, you know, like Chinese martial arts versus um, Western style boxing. I suppose, uh, that was cool. I yeah. liked it. That was good. And uh, and now over to movies, there's a movie of the same name, Warrior, mm, yes. which is MMA depicted in the movie. And I'm not so much of an expert about this stuff, I wouldn't say. But I think my answer on this one is reasonably sound. Okay. Uh, Laura, my wife also loved that movie, Warrior. I, I think it's a fantastic movie. Agreed. Um, even just from the principles of story. Yeah, it's it's just a fantastic movie. And she was asking me specifically about the MMA. She was like, well, was the MMA realistic? And I said, I would describe it as like if somebody took the best moments you could ever hope for in a real MMA match and just made like every match nothing but the best moments. <laughs> That's kind of what this felt like to me. Right. I think that's a fair description. It's good. Um, so I love Warrior. I love the, the choreography. I'm hoping to get Tom Hardy on the show. Fingers crossed. Good luck, man, because he is, oh my God, he is some kind of actor. Yeah. Uh, he's just one of the best, and he was fantastic. Uh, so was Joel Egerton, Nick Nolte, yep. Gavin O'Connor stepping in for, I forget the guy's name, the um, the uh, apparel guy who died suddenly was supposed to be in the movie, and Gavin O'Connor, the director, had to... Yep. Step in. I think I think Gavin wrote it too, actually. Anyway, it was one of the writers. Yeah, that movie is tremendous and on every level. I think it's a fantastic movie. So I love the choreography in that one. Conversely, Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. And the yes. reason that I think this is a good example is this. I really, I think, sometimes I say to people, because um, we humans tend to forget this, you can't really criticize a, person, a person's tactics if you don't understand her objectives. Sound tactics are reverse engineered from objectives. So don't impose your objectives on someone. Understand a person's objectives before you offer an opinion about the the underlying tactics. And so, for example, I have always, in my experience with martial arts, the touchstone has always been, is this going to be helpful for me in defending myself? That's always been my primary and almost, uh, not my only concern, but definitely my primary concern. 
But if somebody's like, look, I just want to learn an ancient Chinese, like beautiful martial art, almost as an art form. And that's why I'm studying this one. My response to that is that's awesome. God bless. As long as you know why you're doing it and you've reverse engineered or, or there's like Taibo for a while. I don't know if that's still a thing. <laughs> Billy Blanks. Yeah. I mean, martial arts, boxing. Yeah. All this stuff. Boxing is a killer cardiovascular workout. I was, I remember when I started boxing at the, at the GIAC, the Greater Ithaca Activity Center in Ithaca, I was in damn good shape. Mm-hmm. I work, I've always, since I was 14, I work out pretty regularly. And I'm, I've always been pretty proud of the shape I'm in. I got frigging gassed in no time just on the heavy bag. I was like, wow, this is so uh, boxing as one example. is fantastic cardiovascular workout. And if that's all you want out of it, then do it. Hit the speed bag, hit the heavy bag, use um, Tabata drills, whatever. It's great for that. I wouldn't rely on it too much if that's all you're doing to, you know, save your life or get you out of a scrape or mm-hmm. get you in a, in a real fight necessarily. But that's not the only thing that boxing is good for. Anyway, so with movies too, even though I like reality-based stuff best, it's the kind of books I write. Oh my God, Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon was gorgeous. Yes. It's like a fantasy of what martial arts would be if people could fly. Beautiful. I loved it. And they weren't pretending that it was reality-based. Yeah, so that's great. Such a good movie. That, that, that one gets a lot of picks actually. So final martial arts question. Kind of. This one doesn't have to be a martial arts movie. Just a favorite movie fight scene. Uh, let me think. And I've had people pick Again, anything from Star, uh, Star Wars to Marvel to The Princess Bride and everything in between. So anything goes. Oh, my God. Well, you know, it just popped up in my head. And I, I almost feel like it's, I mean, I, I, I want to include something that's exotic and goes on for 10 minutes. But because, look, I mean, the uh, I will say that uh, the directors of the John, the first John Wick movie. Yes. And then Chad, Chad Stahelski and David Leach. What they did was groundbreaking. I mean, um, I, I think like the level of training uh, that they had to take Keanu Reeves through and the, the kind of camera work innovation required to move away from what had become a bad habit, in my opinion, in martial arts movies where, you know, like the, it's blurry stuff. It's super, all you can see is an elbow move and you know, well, what, like what happened there? It's a bit of a cheat. It can be, you can do it and with enough exciting music. You can maybe get people a little adrenalized, but but I think Chad and David really had an insight about it could be easy, but we can make this something really fresh. And they did. And it's been widely imitated since then, and understandably so. So come on. I mean, nobody who likes martial arts sequences could say other than good Lord, what they did in John Wick and the subsequent John Wick movies, which um, I don't think David Leach is that involved with it. Chad's the director now, but oh my God, phenomenal. <laughs> but in some ways, I almost feel like at this point, that's an obvious choice. I'll tell you another one, conversely, that I love, that everybody loves, and having spoken with me, you'll know why I love it. It's the first Indiana Jones movie, Raiders of the Lost Ark. When the guy comes out with the sword, you know, he's like, (laughs) spinning the sword around, 200 little pieces, and then he's like, what? And he shoots him. I love that kind of thing. That kind of thinking outside the box. Because again, the best way to handle the punch is not to be there when the punch comes. That's a hilarious example of that. But really, I don't have a sword fight with you. Okay, one more. It's not a scene, okay. but it's such a great line. This is Joss Whedon, and so, of course, it's a great line. In the movie Serenity, which was the movie version of the show Firefly. Firefly. Yeah. For anybody who knows what I'm talking about, this is you know the character Jane. Mm-hmm. Jane is talking to somebody, and the whole speech is very funny, but this is, this is the meat of it that I love much. He says, well, I'd kill a man in a fair fight, or if I thought he might start a fair fight, <laughs> which is exactly. That's awesome. Exactly. I like it. love that kind of mentality. That's a John Rain mentality. 
mentality, my character, John. Yes. Oh, definitely. Uh, so that would be my answer to your question. Nice. Great. Martial oh, that's arts. Great. That's great. All right. So my, my final question, because I know, you know we had the 2009 Rainfall movie. We had the almost TV series starring Keanu Reeves. Are we ever going to see John Rain on screen again? Can you give us any kind of insight or anything like that? You think it'll happen? I hope so. I don't want to. I don't want to predict right. just because let me say this, there's been for, for several years now, there's been a smart group of people skilled, smart. And uh, I don't, the truth is I don't impress that easily by the so-called experts. It's, I don't know. It's just part of my nature, I guess, but I'm consistently pleased and impressed by how thoughtful and skilled these guys have been as they've step-by-step step, uh, tried to develop my books into what would be a television show. Even if it doesn't happen, there are no guarantees in this world. You can only play the game as well as it can be played. And they played it really well. So, so for that, they'll always have my gratitude, even if we don't all in the end get what we want out of it. I can't imagine anybody having done a better job to date. And I'm hopeful that they'll be able to take it the whole way. We've made a lot of progress. This is what I would say. This is kind of how I'd rough and ready describe progress. When, if you're a novelist and somebody options your books, which is how it begins to make a movie or a television show, Hey, that's congr congratulations. Somebody optioned your book. I would say there's now a one in 10,000 chance that uh, this could become an actual television show, Wow! which is, you know, those are daunting odds. So look, we're at, now we're at the point where, I don't know, are we at one in a hundred in terms of the odds? They've really done a great job of making progress. And when you think about the notion, it's like, wow, I mean, you, you started with one in 10,000 at best and you're down to a, one in a hundred. I mean, you're, you, you're killing it. And in one sense, yes. But it's also important to remember that just statistically, uh, it's still the odds are daunting. Very few projects go the distance. I'm optimistic because right. I happen to think the material is great and the team is great. But I've heard so many stories of, uh, I mean, everything was in, everything was locked in a place. And uh, I think I'm, I mean, I, so many stories from other writers I'm friendly with. You just, you never know. And I'm not going to let my breath out until Laura and I are sitting down popping popcorn with the remote control. You know, right. the big showing that very night. But there's reason to be optimistic. So uh, let's be optimistic. Cool. Well, I will keep my fingers crossed because like I said, big, big fan of the series and I would love to see it on the screen. So I'm hoping, I'm really, really hoping. So, but thank you. Thank you. So before I let you go, any, anything else you want to get out there? Maybe anything I forgot to ask and, and I will put links for your, your website and your blog and anything else. And you had mentioned that you teach writing. If you have a link for that, feel free to send me that too. And I'll, I'll get anything you want me to out there when the episode comes out. Uh, thanks for all that. I think uh, hopefully we were comprehensive and, and uh, my long discursive answers were, I'm sure, more than enough. When I teach writing, it's ad hoc. You know, it's like it's, it's not like I have a class. It's not like I have a course I teach. It's just that I'm okay. invited to a conference or something like that. So no, nothing for anybody to link to. Okay. But um, I, I hope that I hope that some of my thoughts on acquiring a skill, whether it's writing a martial art or whatever will be helpful to some of your listeners. Hey, I, it, this has been a blast. It's been a dream come true. I know it's something we've, we've kind of chatted about online for, for probably a year and a half, almost since my show started. So I'm glad we, your, your schedule finally had just a little bit of an opening. Like I said, I know how busy you are. And, and next yeah, your, time. Your timing was really good. That's yeah. good. Well, next time you're in Minnesota for a book signing, let me know. And I will, uh, I'll trek down the three and a half hours to Minneapolis and come meet you in person. I totally will. And thanks for honoring me with the invitation and putting me in with some of the, uh, some of the company 
of previous guests. Like I said, I wouldn't call myself that much of a martial artist, and so I'm honored to be um, to be among some of the people you've you've conversed with. It's it's been, it's been my pleasure, and you're an amazing storyteller. That's that's the best part about the show. Is <laughs> I, I you know I've had a few that you know you ask me a question, and you know I, I kind of tell the horror story. I, one person one time I asked the question, and I was through ninety percent of my questions in like twenty minutes. I'm like, okay, this is going to oh, be yeah, a really, yeah. yeah. <laughs> you then, never have that problem with me. <laughs> exactly. And then on the, on the flip side, I've had one where like I asked the first, this was a gentleman uh, actor, but yeah, like yeah, I asked yeah. him the first question and didn't get to question number two till almost the 40 minute mark. <laughs> so, <laughs> so my, my kind of guy. Exactly. And he warned me before and he's like, I'm a talker. Like, that's good. That's what the show's about. So, so no, that's it's, funny. it's truly been an honor. I, I've loved doing it. And, and, uh, like I said, you, your episode should be out around, uh, end of July. And I can't wait to get the episode out there. It's been, it's well, been a truly a blast. Let, thanks for Let me know so I can, uh, advertise it on social media and all that. Absolutely. Hey, I, I appreciate your okay. time and you enjoy the rest of your evening. Okay. You too. Great talking. Thanks again. Thanks for listening to Everyday Martial Artist. We hope you will join us every week for a brand new episode with a different martial artist telling their story. If you enjoy the show, be sure to leave us a review. Also, be sure to check out our website at everydaymartialartist.com. There you can find all of our episodes and contact us to suggest guests and ask questions. Again, thanks for listening to Everyday Martial Artist, and we'll see you next week.